A story about Sir William Johnson, Indian agent for the British Empire in upstate New York. The story is told by historian Mark Silo. In 1755, the French and their native allies were fighting the British and their native allies here in North America. They were also fighting in other continents, but we'll leave that alone. You're listening to the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. We're joined by Mark Silo, who uh, his uh, profession uh, was a, as a civil engineer, worked for the uh, state of New York, but he's, since his retirement, he seems to do, like to chase history. So let me... <laughs> Let me ask you this. What were Sir William Johnson and his forces trying to accomplish at Lake Champlain? Well, the year 1755, the British put into motion a a four-pronged offensive against French. War had not even been declared yet, but a guy named George Washington was sent to uh, Pennsylvania to tell the French they were encroaching on properties of the state of Virginia, he got into a couple of scrapes. The British sent General Bradstreet over here, and they came up with this uh, four-pronged strategy. Johnson's part of it was to take an army, collect an army of uh, what they call provincial soldiers, men who were lived in the, in the colonies, and uh, go north from Albany, uh, to try to chase the French out of Crown Point. The French had built the Fort St. Frederick at Crown Point in the 1730s, and over several decades they used it as a launch pad for raids against settlements in New York and, and New England, including Schenectady. Um, so uh, that was uh, Sir William's objective, even though he was not Sir William until after the battle. We're, we'll talk, yes, we're going yes. to talk about it. I'll get into that. All right. So he, he gets his army. Does he have any Iroquois allies at this point? Or? Yes, he had approximately 250 Mohawk warriors with him and okay. 3,000 3, provincials from four colonies and one British officer. Oh, really? So it really was local local soldiers. It, it um, was. Bottom line is Johnson never got there. He His army did the job of clearing a road from Fort Ed, what's now Fort Edward, 14 miles up to the southern end of Lake George. They made a camp on some high ground at the south end of Lake George, and they were there when a French army entered the vicinity and attacked them in their, in their camp. What happened there? The French originally were, were supposed to go after the small fort at Fort Edward. It was called Fort Lydius at the time. Uh, but they turned their attention to Johnson's army. Johnson, meanwhile, had sent a 1,000 men to relieve Fort, I'll call it Fort Edward, and the French got wind of that. I mean, both armies had scouts prowling through the woods and taking captives. That was the cell phone network of, of the day. Uh, they set an ambush about three miles south of the camp at Lake George, uh, an uh, action that became known as the Bloody Morning Scout. They sent the uh, 
I'll call them Americans, even though that term was not in vogue uh, in 1755. Uh, the incident went reeling back to the camp at Lake George. Meanwhile, the men there threw up a small breastwork. They grabbed logs, they grabbed wagons, they grabbed boats, anything they could, and defended that frail line against uh, the French, who uh, soon showed up and, uh, and uh, assaulted them. Colonel uh, Ephraim Williams and... Mohawk King uh, Hendrick were killed in this first part of the of the Battle of uh, Lake George. I guess they ended up calling it. I remember their names. But wasn't Ephraim Williams? Or maybe I'm way off base. Wasn't he from the Berkshires? He was from Massachusetts. He led a Massachusetts regiment that was camped with uh, Johnson's army at at Lake George. He, as you say, was killed at the Bloody Morning Scout. Uh, there's an obelisk on top of a giant boulder that uh, is allegedly the spot where he was where he was killed. Historians universally agree that it wasn't the spot, but it's a it's a neat place to see just by the side of uh, of Route Nine up there. King Hendrick was an aged uh, sachem of the Mohawks, and at this time he was. Uh, allegedly so portly and frail that they had to put him on a horse and that of course didn't uh, didn't help with his uh, mortality he was a good target and was killed early in the fight when the ambush was was opened so the bloody morning scout sounds like it was not a good thing for Johnson and his forces but he uh, came back well the men at the camp 3 miles away they could hear the firing they knew something was going on they uh, soon saw um, survivors of their, their, their men trickling back into the camp. There was a Connecticut regiment that stood fast and, and, and assured that they had a pretty safe retreat. Um, and meanwhile, the, the 2,000 men that were left at the camp started throwing up this breastwork. Johnson has been criticized by some historians for not putting up any defensive works before the before the attack. But anyway, the small breastwork that they threw up in the course of an hour and a half or two hours is where they spent the next four to five hours as the French approached and and attacked. It was a pretty static battle. They held positions and fired at one another until the French forces started to withdraw later in the day, and then they retreated, totally retreated after their commander, Baron von Dieskau, was wounded and captured about where the Prospect Diner on Route 9 in Lake George is now. Uh, that's what, what's interesting a lot about the uh, Revolutionary War stories, is we have these local angles. Oh, it's near where they have the diner today. Yeah, yeah. Well, this place at the south end of Lake George, the Lake George Battlefield Park, and I've done this work representing the Lake George Battlefield Park Alliance. It's a very historic spot. I mean, it was an extremely busy military post throughout the French and Indian War and the American Revolution. Uh, it's an interesting site. We have a new visitor center and encourage folks to come up and see us when it's open in the, in the summertime. So after he repulsed the French, Johnson's army was working on construction of Fort William Henry. I mean, that's the fort I remember as a teenager and maybe younger. My parents take, taking us up to Lake George. Johnson's men were the ones who actually built the Fort William Henry, and they had started it just before the battle. They 
completed it, at least completed it enough to uh, raise the flag by November of 1755, after which Johnson uh, decided it was too late in the season to go further and uh, toward his objective at Crown Point, and the Army dispersed, as was pretty normal in uh, winters back then. But Johnson, you know, having held the ground and repulsed the attacking enemy, this was claimed as a victory, and it was a significant victory because all of that four-pronged offensive of the British, it was the only major battlefield victory that they had. So Johnson was celebrated as a hero. Uh, the king gave him a baronetcy. That's why we know him as Sir William Johnson. Parliament paid him a reward of 5,000 pounds, which was a pretty good fortune back then still is. But uh, so he's come down to us who know, you know anything about history in the Mohawk Valley. He's come down to us as Sir William Johnson. He made his uh, his name or uh, earned his bones or whatever you want to say. Right. Um, and he had very little in the way of military experience before this battle, before his being appointed as a, a major general to uh, lead this expedition. Um, you know, he came to the Mohawk Valley as a 23-year-old to, to uh, look after his uncle's estates, which he did in a great way and became the uh, major Indian agent of the British with the, the northern uh, tribes of, of Native Americans. So he was quite a celebrity by then, and then he got called on by the General Bradstreet, who came over from Britain to lead this, to lead this army and was hailed as a great success. You say he didn't have a great deal of military experience, but he was known around these parts. What I take from history is that Johnson was very good at interacting with the, especially the Iroquois and and other Native Americans. Uh, that's unequivocally true. He was uh, well known among the tribes. He conducted diplomacy in a way that was fairly unique in that he learned their language. He uh, dressed as a, as a Mohawk when he went among the tribes. He married allegedly several Mohawk women and had a lot of children, in addition to his legitimate children. So he, he and, and as a result, he was uh, highly esteemed by the Mohawk and other Iroquois or Haudenosaunee, as uh, we properly call them these days, um, and uh, became well-known throughout the, throughout the colonies. We're talking with uh, Mark Silo, historian, about his uh, research on the, the Battle of Lake George. What you're interested in, or what I gather from a couple of articles you sent me, you're interested in where the battle lines were for this, I think, for this battle. I don't even know what a bat. What is a battle? Sounds obvious, but what's a battle line? Well, a battle line or breastwork is just uh, something that uh, soldiers will throw up so that they can hide behind and be shielded from enemy fire. It was very, very common. I mean, a fort is the grand, uh, <laughs> grand emblem of of battle lines. So, uh, yeah, that I when that. Visitor Center opened in 2022. I became a, a docent there, volunteering to, to talk to people about all the events that took place at this site. And uh, 
we were, I knew we were in the middle of the battlefield, but I, I didn't know where the lines were. We have drawings and maps that show the lines, but nobody seemed to be able to answer exactly where they were. So I grabbed some maps and did a little research and went running around the battlefield and and uh, made some conclusions. And what were your conclusions? Did you find the battle lines? Yeah, I believe I believe so. Uh, there's a one very famous drawing of of the battle by a man named Samuel Blodgett, who was with Johnson's army as a sutler, which is a civilian salesman, and he would sell the soldiers needle thread, blankets, rum, whatever they he had on hand that they were looking for. He watched the battle uh, from a height which Fort George was later was later constructed. He interviewed a lot of the men that were in the battle and at the Bloody Morning Scout, and within three months, he had a drawing, a very artful drawing of the battle and the positions of the camps and the men and the cannons. Uh, He had it engraved and was for sale in Boston by the end of 1755, and early in 1756, it was engraved uh, with minor changes and for sale in, in London, England. And it comes down to us as really the the major source of information about locations of the battle. We have a lot of first-hand accounts about the events, but it's Mr. Blodgett that left us with the most clues as to where where things uh, actually happened. He shows some terrain features, and I knew the line wouldn't be there, but maybe some of these terrain features would still be around, and I, if I could locate those, maybe I could go from there and figure out where the uh, so-called breastwork battle line was. And it it worked out pretty well. There are enough of the terrain features uh, still exist and identifiable that I was able to do that. You were lucky. This this part of Lake George where the battlefield is and the campground and Million Dollar Beach, we're just lucky that that property was all bought up by the state of New York in the late 1800s and remains mostly undeveloped, unlike... A lot of the village of Lake George, you know, this if this state hadn't bought this land, it might be just more restaurants and T-shirt shops, et cetera. So you did find the the battle lines. What are you going to do with this in, information? Well, I have uh, given a few tours. Uh, some of the members of our uh, Battlefield Alliance we took out last spring. Uh, then the folks at Fort William Henry that were having a reenactment weekend in September, they wanted uh, tours then, and we, we did that. Uh, I've got an article in the Alliance newsletter and a, and a uh, lengthy report that uh, uh, is, is published on their, their website. Uh, this coming October, I'll be speaking about this at the uh, Fort Plain Museum's uh, annual Sir William Johnson and the Wars of Empire conference. I know you have attended several of those, Bob. So it's kind of gotten uh, gotten uh, a good deal of interest. Do you expect that there's a book you're going to do about this? <laughs> well, there are uh, lots of good uh, things in print about this battle, namely in Russell Bellico's book, Empires in the Mountains, and Ian Steele's book, Betrayals, about the whole Fort William Henry story. So I don't, I don't think I'll be doing a book. But I've been busy enough putting together this PowerPoint for the Fort Plain folks and, and doing those reports I had done previously. 
I, I got invited to speak at Fort Plains Conference this past October, but I couldn't make it because I was going to be away. So that gave me a whole year to get ready. So I'm actually doing a additional research uh, so I can uh, sound like I know what I'm talking about when I get up there to speak. So you say a book is not too likely. No, I don't think so. Uh, that uh, work has pretty much been done mostly by uh, Russ Bellico, who's a member of the Alliance Board of Trustees and the author of Empires in the Mountains and several other books about uh, Lake George, Lake Champlain history. And a fellow named Ian Steele wrote a book about the whole history of uh, Fort William Henry called Betrayals. And uh, he's got a lot, uh, a, a very beefy chapter about this this Battle of Lake George, so nobody needs me to write any more about it, but I'm having <laughs> fun doing the doing the tours, and I'll be doing that presentation at the Fort Plain Museum conference in uh, fall of 24. I may have mentioned this already, but as a child and a teenager, I remember when we'd go up to see some of the battle sites from the Revolution or earlier, uh, we would go to Fort William Henry, but uh, what happened to the fort in real time after Johnson was there? Well, Johnson, uh, as, as we were saying, his men built the fort, at least the first phase of it, in uh, 1755. In 1756, they kept building and, and uh, building of the fort and building boats for the expeditions that the British planned for the future against uh, the French forts up on Lake Champlain. Um, but in uh, the French beat them to it in 1757. A French army under Marquis de Montcalm came south on the lake. South is actually going up the lake uh, since Lake George flows north. But he put Fort William Henry under siege mm -hmm. during the summer of 1757. Uh, after a few days, the uh, British commander there had no choice but to surrender. Uh, and then before leaving town, the French burnt the fort to the ground. Meanwhile, the French, the, the, the British and Americans who had surrendered were supposed to be marched safely down to Fort Edward, but that's when the famous massacre took place that uh, James mm -hmm. Fenimore Cooper uh, talked about in The Last of the Mohegans. And that actually took place on the grounds of uh, right next to our new visitor center on the grounds of the Battle of, of Lake George. Who massacred whom? <laughs> well, the uh, uh, the British, and uh, there were British regulars there by then, and there were American provincials, and there were also women and children, and they were uh, lined up to be escorted safely to Fort Edward. But Montcalm had with him about a thousand Native Americans from tribes all over Canada and all the way out to the Great Lakes and Midland, and now it's now the American Midwest. They didn't understand about the honors of war, according to Europeans, and uh, wanted their their booty and captives. But eventually, uh, this war between the French and their allies and the British and their allies uh, ended with victory by the by the British? Yeah, that's true. And the, the site at uh, Lake George had a lot to do with that. In uh, 1758, an army of around 15,000 men uh, under uh, General Abercrombie uh, made camp there and then attacked Fort Ticonderoga, which was then Fort Caroline of the French. 
They were repulsed at the Battle of uh, Ticonderoga. The following year, General Amherst came along and camped in the same spot where our visitor center is now, next to Fort William Henry. And when he assaulted uh, Fort Ticonderoga, uh, the French by then had a lot fewer men there, and they fought for a few days and then abandoned the fort and uh, blew it up. And then they uh, abandoned the Fort St. Frederick, which was Sir William's original objective in 1755. And so the French, the British were now the masters of this Mohawk Lake, or Hudson River Lake Champlain corridor. And in 1760, they, they uh, completed the final defeat of the French in, in Canada and uh, took over Canadian Canada as part of the British Empire. So it sounds like your main focus now is this historic area in in Lake George, doing doing things there. Yeah, as a, now I'm a retired guy, and I get to spend a lot of time up at my camp on the Scroon River, which is not too far from Lake George. And uh, so I got involved in some events down there and with the Alliance, which is a, a great uh Nonprofit uh, organization that that cares for the battlefield with the with the help of New York State Environmental Conservation, and it's been a, a, a lot of great interest to me. As you know, the last time I spoke to you was about my book on a Civil War regiment from the Mohawk Valley. I kind of changed centuries, is what I tell people. Most of my reading now is about the uh, the colonial era. I was going to ask you about that. I mean. Is it just because it's there, or do you like that period, the colonial period, better? Well, I've always found all history, American history, fascinating. We did a lot on the Civil War for, I don't know, 20 years, and now, as I say, changed centuries. I am. I'm fascinated by all what went on in our in our vicinity. It's We're so history-rich in this area. Also, the you know the root causes of our American Revolution and and the War of Independence. It's a lot of uh, interesting material to read out there and places to go. So I I've been enjoying it. And it sounds like you really get out there, like finding the battle lines. It, you, you probably get dirty doing it. <laughs> yeah, good. good. Plenty dirty. It took a while. I mean, there was it wasn't as easy as I made it sound. There were some dead ends, and I did a lot of uh, scrambling through the brush. There, I got a lot of funny looks when from people that were camped at the campground when I was passing through, poking at my iPad. <laughs> but uh, generally, it was all worthwhile. Mostly, a lot of a lot of fun. I I was and I enjoyed it a lot, and I had enough of uh, positive findings that it that it kept me going for those few months that it that it took me and you had a personal connection as i recall to the civil war stories there was a relative of your wife's maybe <laughs> yes i got the reason i ever got involved initially with the 115th new york was because uh at an antique show i saw the book 18 i think 1878 history of fulton and montgomery county and it had an engraving of a farm in Palatine in it that I recognize as hanging in my mother-in-law's dining room. And so, of course, being a good son-in-law, I bought the book, and I, they had an article in there about the 115th New York. 
Uh, I read that, and I had thought I knew a lot about the Civil War, but I didn't know anything about where these guys from the Mohawk Valley and Saratoga went during the war. Olusty, Florida, Port Walthall Junction, Virginia. I mean, they had quite the odyssey. So that that did lead to a book way back. It came out in 2007. Well, it uh, sounds like you've uh, got a plan for the rest of your life. <laughs> well, there's... There's no end of places to go and books to read, and I'm just as happy when I'm sitting up in the Adirondacks by the Scrooge River, Bob. So I'm, I'm enjoying retirement to the fullest. Mark Silo is a native of Yonkers who relocated to the Albany area after receiving his bachelor's degree from the University of Notre Dame, his master's from Cornell, both in civil engineering, and he's... Uh, been involved, as he said, in uh, history of the Civil War and now uh, history of the uh, colonial period and belongs to a number of historical organizations. Come to think of it, just one more thing. Scott Hefner is site manager of Old Fort Johnson, historic site in Fort Johnson, New York. It's a fortified stone home built by William Johnson in 1749. Incidentally, by the time he left it in 1763 to go to his more palatial uh, mansion up in what became Johnstown, New York, well, he by then was Sir William Johnson. And Scott Hefner has this to say. The thing that makes it unique, I think, is that here we have this prominent 18th century guy, and there are two houses that show two different phases of his career. And that's kind of unique. Most of the time you go visit a, a historic house and it's frozen in one moment in the person or the family's life. And here in upstate New York, you could see a development of someone's career over you know how they lived in their early career and how they lived in their later career. And that, I think, makes the Johnson House is unique in New York State. He built the old, what we call Old Fort Johnson first, 1749. It's a stone house, right? Built yep. of limestone? He built the house. Really, uh, his initial reason to build the house was to show off the money he had made in the fur trade. Uh, and it was a, there was a whole complex here that, that involved outbuildings and mills, a, a grist mill and a sawmill, and he was, it was really sort of an exercise in conspicuous consumption. When he built it, it was the largest private home in the Mohawk Valley west of Schenectady. So it was meant to show off uh, the money he had made in the fur trade. And then when did he build his other bigger mansion up in Johnstown? He built Johnson Hall and moved in there in 1763 after the uh, well, what we call the French and Indian War and what the rest of the world calls the Seven Years' War. And he was a hero in that war, to the British anyway, right? He was. He, uh, the war started in late in 1754, uh, and it was really a conflict in North America about who would control the waterways and the access into what we would consider the Great Lakes and the Ohio Valley, uh, a conflict between the British here in this colony and the French in Canada. 
uh, and it wasn't going so well. The, the, the early year of the war was marked with a number of disasters in several places, and Johnson scored what was really the first victory against the French by defeating a French force at the Battle of Lake George in early September of 1755. So they made him a, a knight because of that, right? Or right. put him he was, in the he was aristocracy. Named, uh, uh, Sir William Johnson, uh, the Baronet of New York, they made, they, at that point, they appointed him the permanent superintendent for Indian affairs for the northern colonies. So he was the British government's representative to the native tribes here, uh, and they gave him a cash prize of about 5,000 pounds, which was a lot of money. Speaking of money, we, of course, depend on your contributions to keep the Historian's Podcast going. You can find our GoFundMe page by going through our website. We have a blue button. Hit the blue button, then you go to the GoFundMe, and you can make a donation uh, using your credit card or other electronic means. Or you could write out a check to Bob Cudmore. Don't make it for 5,000 pounds. That doesn't make any sense anymore. But uh, write it out to Bob Cudmore. Send to 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. Thanks to Mark Silo and Scott Hefner. Thanks to producer Dave Green. I'm Bob Cudmore. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast.